Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. John 4, 43 through 54. After two days, he left there for Galilee. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, where they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum, When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying that the boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Well, good morning, Candido Church family. It's officially fall, which means that it's pumpkin spice latte season, right? Uh, also means that it's the season for pumpkin patches and corn mazes. Now, if any of you have ever done a corn maze, you're going to relate with me here. Uh, there is one essential, uh, life-saving, that's, that's probably a stretch. Uh, let's just say embarrassment-saving resource you need to have in your hands if you're about to enter into a corn maze. Do you know what I'm talking about? You need like an aerial photo of the maze that you're about to enter, or you could spend possibly hours in that torture chamber. That's just what it's gonna be for you. Maybe some of you that are like Office fans, you think of like Kevin Malone, like the Hay Palace episode, you know what I'm talking about? Help, help. But as we open up the Gospel of John, and as we've navigated it, the past few weeks, there's a, there's a passage here that I, I want you to keep handy as we're walking through this, this gospel, and that is John 20, verses 30 and 31. This is for us like a maze map that as we're navigating these pages and these chapters, it kind of continues to remind us like where we're headed, like where this is all going. John writes this in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. In fact, he goes on to say, if I was to write down everything that Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough like room in the world for all the books that would be written, okay? But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John's great desire as he writes these words, the spirit working through him, is that you would encounter Jesus in all his power and glory, that you would come to believe that Jesus is God. And then by believing in him, you would have life in his name. That's why John writes what he writes here. And so with each verse, 
He's trying to move us to belief in Jesus. And I just want to pause. We're just a few weeks in to the Gospel of John and just ask simply, do you believe in Jesus yet? And if not, that's okay. We're just four chapters in to a 21-chapter book. We're, we're going to continue to walk through this, continue to look into these stories about who Jesus is. So ironically, our passage today begins with reasons why people didn't believe in Jesus as they encountered him in his ministry. I'm going to pick up in verse 43. It says this, that after two days, he left there for Galilee. And I want to just pull back and remind us like where we are. Um, last week, we talked about the woman at the well. Jesus was in Samaria and what started with the woman at the well giving her life to Christ has spilled out of her, pun intended, <laughs> into the city of Sychar. And it appears that everybody is coming to know Jesus and placing their faith in him. Tremendous harvest in Samaria. And after two days, Jesus packs up his bags. And now he's moving from a place of fruitful ministry to a place of certain rejection. For, verse 44, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. I want to just pause for a bit and just talk about a couple of barriers to belief that this passage kind of brings up for us. The first barrier to belief, something that can keep us from putting our faith and trust in Jesus, is familiarity. And here's what I mean by familiarity and why this is so dangerous. Because we could become so comfortable with a wrong view of Jesus that it actually makes us immune to the real Jesus. I'll say that again. The danger of familiarity is this, that it's possible that you could become so comfortable with a wrong view of Jesus that you would actually become immune to the real Jesus. And here's how this played out in Galilee. The people of Galilee and Jesus, they'd grown up together. And because of that, because they had known him his whole life, they couldn't get over questions like, isn't this Joseph's son? Where did he get his training? I don't remember him heading off to school someplace, right? And it was these questions, this familiarity with Jesus that was blinding them from just purely seeing the glory that was on display in front of them. It's worth noting the danger of familiarity because for us, this danger is huge, especially those of us that have grown up in the church, that we could become so comfortable with the wrong view of Jesus that we might actually become immune to the real Jesus. And this door, it, it works both directions because it could cause us to reject Jesus and over-familiarity thinking that, well, well, of course I know Jesus. But because of some bad experiences or some things that you heard about him, you reject him too quick and dismiss him too quickly. And that'd be one way that familiarity could work against us. The other way, though, that familiarity could work against us, that we could say that we've accepted Jesus, but it's not really Jesus. What we've accepted is some off-brand version of Jesus that's more comfortable to us. That we kind of put words in his mouth and beliefs in his head and, and say that this is what he's about. And because of this over-familiarity, we, like the people, verse 44, can actually be blind to who Jesus really is. 
when you read verse 44, the question that should hit us is where is the honor? Where is the awe? Where are the humble hearts that are due to Jesus? And I would ask, what about you? When you approach Jesus, do you approach him with honor? Do you approach him with a sense of awe? Do you approach him with a humble heart? Because the danger of familiarity is that with time, your heart can grow a bit cold. That with familiarity with time, what once used to awe you doesn't do it for you anymore. There's a danger here that we need to understand. And we need to pray, God, give us fresh eyes that we can see your glory each time we encounter you as we open your word. But our text continues, verse 45, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything that he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. Now this seems good, right? Jesus had predicted that he wouldn't get any honor in his home country, and now they're welcoming him. So maybe he was wrong. i just slow you down real quick and just let you know, there is a form of welcoming that isn't very welcoming. And here's what I mean. Grandparents, are you with me? Imagine the scene that you're pulling up to the house of your grandkids. And as you open the car door, you all of a sudden see the door of the house fly open and you hear the words, Papa, Nana. Kids come running out. You get out of the car. You drop to a knee. You're so excited for this hug. And your grandkids run right past you, go into the backseat of your car, start digging through the trunk, and they go, did you bring us anything? See? See? There is a form of welcoming that's not very welcoming, right? Because why were they welcoming Jesus? It says it. Because they had seen everything that he did in Jerusalem during the festival. If you go back to chapter 2, after Jesus overturns the table of the money changers, it says that he performed signs among them and many believed in him, but Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. They're just sign seekers and wonder worshipers. They say they love me, but it's a lie. And this is the second barrier that can keep us from genuine faith. It's not familiarity, it's fixation. It's fixation on what Jesus can do rather than who he is. See, the whole point of these miracles, right? Remember the maze map? The whole point of these miracles was that it would cause us to go, wow, if Jesus can do this, then who is he? If Jesus can do this, what can't he do? Then it would lead you to a place of believing that Jesus is God. And then by believing in him, you would find life in his name. It was meant to lead someplace, but for them, it only stayed surface level. And because it only stayed there, the genuineness of their faith was proven. It's a lie. It's a sham. Because yes, they welcomed Jesus, but they didn't love Jesus. And this may be the most powerful line I'll drop on you this morning. So maybe be ready to write this down. You see, unbelievers, they don't love Jesus. They use Jesus. Ooh, that... And that actually stings some of us. Unbelievers don't love Jesus, they use Jesus. 
Unbelievers, they want Jesus to make their lives better, but they won't hit their knees and surrender all to Jesus. Unbelievers, they want Jesus to make them happy, but they don't want him to tell them what to do. Unbelievers don't love Jesus. They use Jesus because they're fixated on what he can do rather than who he is. And I lay all this out there before you because it is in this wasteland of hypocrisy and insincere worship. It's against this backdrop in this text that a desperate father enters the scene. So, so far, what we've seen in John is we've seen Jesus interact with the religious and lost, that being Nicodemus. We've seen Jesus interact with the reckless and lost, the woman at the well. And now we're going to see Jesus interact with the desperate and lost. And this is for sure going to be the most emotionally charged scene that we've seen so far. And so we'll pick up in verse 46. He went again to Cana of Galilee where he had turned water into wine and there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. I want to just pause for a bit. I try to do this every time like I'm just reading scriptures myself. And I, I want to do this together because I think sometimes we can move through like scripture too quick. And I think it's good for us just to pause for a moment and just feel this. Because I'm a parent. And I'm curious, are there any parents in the room that you've been at the brink of losing a child? Anybody ever been at this point before? Stacy and I have. If you meet our oldest, Jacoby, today, you will meet a strong and healthy 10-year-old boy with an infectious smile. But his journey into the world was pretty adventurous. Uh, from the moment that Stacy's water broke to the time that things got real, it, it, it happened very, very quick for us. And this was our first time having kids. And I'll, I'll, there's a long story here, but we knew that it was getting real when his legs came out of Stacy's body while we were still at home. Okay, like that, that's how real it was. And then we go like, oh yeah, and they're not supposed to come out that direction. Like they're not supposed to go like feet first, right? But it's at that moment we realized like, okay, this is getting a little bit wild. So I remember throwing Stace into the car, not literally like, like you know what I mean? Like we got, got her into the car and luckily our house was just a block and a half from the hospital. And so I parked the car out front, right off the emergency entrance. I come running in, we're having a baby. And everybody looks at me, because I think this happens all the time when the dudes come in, they're like super excited. They're like, oh, congratulations, dad. Come over here and fill out some paperwork and we'll get the process started. I'm like, okay. Totally missing the fact that there's an emergency going on in my car, right? So our friend who's a doula, who had had five babies of her own and was very experienced, she comes sprinting in and she's like, no, like the baby's coming out right now. And then things start moving. I'm like, yeah, that's what I was supposed to say. You know, so, but things, things all of a sudden start moving real quick and they, they put us into the elevator and we're going upstairs and we're going into the first room. And, and I remember being in the room and seeing six nurses just running every direction. I remember hearing 
a cry over the loudspeaker. Would a doctor please come to room 407? Would a doctor please come to room 407? We have an emergency. I remember when I heard the phrases, we can't get a heartbeat, followed by his feet are freezing. And it was at that moment that it hit me. We might be going home today without our son. I think like the worst moment of my life was that like 10 second window that you've got when you hear that news and now they're telling you like, let's just push and see what happens. And you're in that window and you gotta look your wife in the eyes say something. I'll pause for a bit and share that. For you that aren't parents or you've never experienced a moment like this to understand, there is nothing like the helplessness of a moment like that. When you can't do anything, anything, This father in this moment is desperate and he's run out of options. And so he sprinted 15 miles uphill because he heard that Jesus is there. And if anybody can do anything about this, maybe Jesus can do it. And he comes to Jesus and he's pleading with him, come down, travel 15 miles with me to see my son so that he doesn't die. So it's in the heat of the moment that these words of Jesus can seem pretty cold. But keep in mind, right, Jesus never says the wrong thing at the wrong time. But this is what Jesus says in response, his request as he pleads, come down with me. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. And I believe what Jesus is doing here is he's offering both a rebuke to the masses and a test. He's rebuking the masses of these sign seekers and these wonder worshipers. And the question is, is this guy any different? But Jesus knows and he's offering a test. I think this would be similar to like when the Gentile mother comes to Jesus and begs, Jesus, please come and cast the demon out of my daughter. And Jesus says to her, woman, is it right to take the bread from the children and throw it to the dogs? And she goes, yeah, but even the dogs get to lick up the scraps, right? And he delights in her faith. It's like, Something similar here. He's, he's offering that, that cold response, but it's a, it's a test of that. And when the father persists, you can see his desperation. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. And Jesus speaks five words. Go, your son will live. And the man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. And while he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. And he asked them, at what time did he get better? Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized that that was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. And so he himself believed along with his whole household. Jesus didn't have to travel 15 miles to see his son. He didn't have to touch him. He didn't even have to get into the same room. 
All he had to do was say five words. Jesus can do more with five words than you could do with five billion lifetimes. And this is the Jesus that we sing about. And we sing about him because whispering would never do him justice and it doesn't satisfy our hearts. This is the Jesus that we trust regardless of who's in the White House or how many of our friends have coronavirus or what social media post is getting more likes or what our friends say about our new faith. We trust this Jesus regardless because before the world even began, before the sun was even in the universe, Jesus was in control. And he is compassionate and kind, and he holds the keys of life and death. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus? Thank you. And we can celebrate that. Anybody else want to join her? <laughs> what holds you back? What holds you back? One of the most beautiful aspects of this passage is that it's in that wasteland of insincerity and hypocrisy and all of that that we get to watch a seedling sprout from the ground of new faith, genuine faith in this guy. And I think there's stuff that we can take away from this that, that should challenge us. Because I would ask you, do you believe in Jesus? But I wouldn't even take it a step further and say, and is your belief in Jesus, does it have the marks of genuine faith that we see in the life of this man? And so I'm gonna call us to examine ourselves here just a little bit, all right? You with me? There's three marks in here that I think we see within his life that mark genuine faith. Here's the first mark of genuine faith. He takes Jesus at his word. Genuine faith takes Jesus at his word. It's a real question, right? When the, when the royal official is standing there, the real question exists, like, is he like everybody else? Is he a sign seeker, a wonder worshiper? Is he standing there saying, Jesus, come and do this for me? But the way that he's posturing himself is like, and, and I'll believe in you if you can do this for me. I'll believe it when I see it. And Jesus doesn't do what he asks. Remember, the guy came there pleading, Jesus, come with me, come down and, and heal my son. And what Jesus does is he doesn't go with him. He simply says five words. And what's it say in verse 50? That he believed what he said and he left. He didn't argue. He didn't push back. He took Jesus at his word and he left. What is the cadence of your life? Are you always like arguing with God or do you just take him at his word and go, that's, that's what it is? Because we can screw this up so much, especially when it comes to something so simple like, like salvation, right? We always want to make it about steps. Like what are the steps for me to get right with God? And I go, it's not steps. It's not multiple steps. It's one big step. Belief. Belief. Which is the opposite of work. In fact, in this situation, you offer nothing to your salvation except for your, your sin. 
Belief is the opposite of work. It's the opposite of doing anything. It's believing that when Jesus died on the cross, he was nailed there because of what you and I have done in our lives. The things that we've done that God hates, it was our sin that held him there. And Jesus could have taken himself off the cross, but he kept himself there for us. That you could sit here and go, what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me. And that by believing in Jesus, I'm saved. Let's take one of the promises of Jesus. And I would ask you then, will you take Jesus at his word and believe in him? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Genuine faith takes Jesus at his word and it clings to his promises. Second marker of genuine faith here that we see lived out is genuine faith multiplies. Genuine faith multiplies. We saw this with the woman at the well, right? That what God did in her, it overwhelmed her and it overflowed. The grace of God poured into her life, overflowed into the town around her and everybody around her started to come to know Christ. What do we see in this passage? A father coming to know Christ and his whole household following him. I just want to give a quick word to dads. There was a Lifeway survey done a handful of years ago and what they found out was pretty revealing. They were looking at the situation of if you have an entire family that doesn't know Christ, what happens if one member of the family comes to know Jesus? And what they found was this, that if you have an entire family that doesn't know Christ and one of the children is the first of the family to come to know Christ, do you know what the odds are that the whole family comes to know Jesus? Three and a half percent. Three and a half percent. If the mom is the first in the family to come to know Jesus, the odds of the rest of the family coming to know Jesus, 17%. Fellas, any idea what the odds are if the dad is the first to come to know Jesus? 93 I cannot overstate for you the importance of a father leading his family. I can't overstate it. As the, as the head of the household goes, as the man goes, so goes everything else, it seems like. And I'm telling you, it is shameful if your kid grows up knowing more about your favorite football team than they know about Jesus because of you. And how many of our households are defined by that? What are you passing on to your kids? What is the pace that you're setting? For this guy, it started with him and his entire household followed suit. Dads, what pace are you setting? And for anybody else in here, understand that when I say genuine faith multiplies, I'm not saying that you have to do that to earn God's affections. We've already covered that, right? 
that by believing in Jesus, that's how you're reconciled with God. But this is what happens as a natural overflow of the abundant life that has been poured into you is that you will go out and you will share. Can I just ask this test of genuineness here? How many people know Jesus because you know Jesus? If it's zero, I'd simply go back to point two. Genuine faith multiplies. Third marker of genuine faith that we see in this text is that genuine faith persists in the already but not yet. We don't know the length of time between when this father heard the promise of Jesus that your son is gonna be well and when he actually connected with his servant and realized his son was well. It might've been 10 hours, 15 hours, 20 hours. But there's a gap in there where the father takes Jesus at his word and begins walking down the road. And I'm imagining that as his father's just walking down the road, he's just repeating to himself, he said he's gonna be fine. He said he's gonna be fine. He said my boy's gonna be fine. And he's just saying it over and over again because doubt's starting to creep in at the same time. Why didn't I fight with him? I should have brought him with me. I should have forced him to come. I should have argued with him about it because he needs to come. He needs to touch my son. What if this doesn't work? And these things just going back and forth. And just saying, but he said my son's gonna be fine. He said my son's gonna be fine. And then the joy of the moment when he sees his servant off at the distance, and, I, and I'm, I'm guessing he could tell by even the look on his face and the pace of his feet that he's gonna get good news. But the joy of that moment when he realizes that everything that Jesus promised has become fully realized, it's true. <laughs> Just the joy of that moment must have been overwhelming. And I think what we get in that just moment, that, that, that 15 hour span or whatever, we get in that, just that small picture, just a microcosm of how our life with Jesus works. That at that moment of choosing to trust in Jesus and placing our faith in Jesus, that, that there's like so many things happen, right? That you get transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the sun, that you get healed, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit and the, the work of the Spirit begins to happen in your life that's transforming you, that you cross from death to life in a moment, but it's invisible. And so you walk all of life clinging to the promises of God and there will be a day where all of a sudden all of the promises that Jesus ever made to us will be fully realized. And you'll be able to look at it all with such joy and delight and say, praise Jesus. Everything that he said is true. Everything that he promised has come true. But we live in that short window of the already but the not yet. Of the promises but not the realization. The realization that at that moment, yeah, all of that, that took place. And I say this, that genuine faith persists in the already but not yet because Christ follower, if you find yourself today discouraged, anxious, or nervous, cling to the promises of Jesus, the promise 
that he will not lose any one of us on the way of taking us home. He promised. He doesn't fail on his promises. This is Jesus. What keeps you from believing in him? Has he become too familiar to you? Have you become comfortable with an off-brand version of Jesus rather than just looking at the Jesus who is, who might say some things to you that you will not like and may disagree with you? See with fresh eyes Jesus as he is. And trust him yourself. He is good. Let me pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, that all of your promises are yes and amen. Even though we haven't fully realized them yet, we don't see it played out yet. We know that you are all-powerful and you cannot tell a lie and that you can deliver on everything that you've promised. And God, I pray for us today. I pray for us as a, as a people collectively. I pray for each of us, even as individuals, that we would put our hope and trust in you and you alone. And maybe some in this room to do that today for the first time. And that God, you would then overwhelm us with your goodness and your grace. It would, it would overwhelm and then overflow from our lives into the lives of those around us. Especially dads in the room that would mark our families and whatever messes we've made of our lives, whatever messes we've made of our families. That God, you would use us as lights in dark places. And I pray that you would give us then strength to endure, strength to persist in the already but not yet. Thank you, Jesus, for your precious promises that we cling to today. The promise of life, of endurance and strength, and the promise that you go with us as we walk with you. We love you. Amen. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.